Mac Power Users, episode 394, Workflows with now author Dan Morin. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside my pal, David Sparks. How are you, David? Doing great, Katie Floyd. How about you today? I'm wonderful as well. Um, We're pleased to have a good friend of the show back on Mac Power Users. I'd like to welcome Dan Moran over. Welcome, Dan. Hi. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's a pleasure to be on the show again. 394. That's a wow. You're getting close to 400. We're not messing around, man. I know you guys. You guys are serious business. Not only do we have plans for show 400, we have plans for show 500. Wow. All right. I like that. That's kind of, that is forward planning right there. I'm impressed. Dan, Dan and I were uh, roomies in the, uh, <laughs> in the bunk bed uh, relay. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it was a, a relay commune. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about this morning because um, uh, David Smith, who was also one of our roomies, just released an update to Pedometer Plus Plus, his app. And I was wrote in as a disclosure, like, full disclosure, we were roommates at WWDC, just so you know. But the app's free, so go nuts. <laughs> but but they, we didn't share bunk beds with Smith. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That was you, me, and Stephen Hackett. And it was uh, it was an experience. It was. It was. I, I think it kind of maybe best if what happened there just stays there. You know? <laughs> that's smart. That's probably a good idea. Some sometimes it makes it makes us nervous. But Dan, I I, lo- I went back and and looked in the archives. the The last time you were on the show was um, episode two forty nine, and and actually you were an author then too. You've been an author for a while. You were author of the Connected Apple Family, and you talked about the sh- the book on that show. But you're you're now a fiction author. You have that to to name to you to add to your to your long long resume. So you just wrote your first novel, right? Or you just released your first novel? Yeah, well, we'll say my first novel was just published. It took many years to write it, and we'll get into that. But yeah, my first novel came out back in May, uh, The Caledonian Gambit, as I'm sure you will hear us say many more times throughout this episode. Uh, And it was the culmination of, yeah, a lot of years of work. And for me, just sort of a lifetime goal of being able to write and publish a novel so it was a a big deal and it was published by the folks over at talos press um and i'm very excited about it and excited to talk to you guys about it yeah i mean sometimes a friend does something amazing and and i i'm going to give you full credit here dan you did something amazing it's not easy in 2017 to get published it's really hard right everybody does the self-publishing thing but to have a, a real deal science fiction company say, we want to make your book and put it in all the bookstores. And I mean that, I don't know. I'm as a friend, I am very pleased for you. And, and I know how hard you worked. So we're going to talk today about all the geeky things you did, not only to write the book, but to get the book published. And even like now that you have legions of fans, how do you manage that? So um, <laughs> we're going to cover all that. And on the technology angle, before we do it though, uh, I thought we should take a minute to talk about the anniversary of our beloved Relay FM. We we should talk about it because this is anniversary month over at Relay, but it's it's kind of like from mid month to mid month. So uh, Relay has turned three 
this year. And when we do this, we celebrate the anniversary of Relay because all of the podcasters on Relay get together and we start uh, releasing special anniversary episodes of of our show to the members of Relay FM. So those of you can go out and you can subscribe and become a Relay FM member. And you get a few extra little bonuses. You get a bonus show um, on our anniversary month. You get a newsletter. You get a bonus podcast that uh, Stephen Hackett produces. Uh, They've got some awesome wallpapers. I mean, they're just a lot of nice little perks that they put in there. And then, of course, you get bucket loads of good karma for for supporting all of your your Relay hosts. But we released a uh, an episode recently. It should now be in the feed if you're a Relay member. An Ask Me Anything episode. And I don't think it got too embarrassing, David. I think it was okay. I, I embarrassed myself a few times adequately, I think. That's all that matters. Um, and this was on the heels of our, our popular last year. We did a Star Trek and Star Wars episode. So. Or and or versus however you want to phrase it. <laughs> yeah, we had a we had a heated discussion of Star Wars and Star Trek last year, and that's in the member feed. And there's a whole bunch of other great shows in the member feed. Um, there's some of the shows are doing like online games and, and you know collaboration episodes. There's just a bunch of cool content out there. And if you like the stuff they're doing at Relay, uh, now would be the time to join. Uh, you can join for as little as five dollars a month. Uh, you can support a single show like ours, or you can say, I like all of them. And uh, either way is fine. And uh, we do appreciate it. And I think the guys that really have really gone out of their way to bring you something extra for that membership. And Dan, you've got one that is coming out not too long after this podcast comes out. What do you, what do you got planned? Uh, we So at Clockwise, uh, my co-host Micah Sargent and I will be doing a crossover episode. I think I can, I think I can dish on this. Uh, no one's told me I can't, so you can't stop me. It's fine. Nobody's uh, listening. I, Don't worry about it. That's, <laughs> we'll do a, we're doing a crossword episode with Jason Snell and Stephen Hackett at Download. Um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. We, I won't go too much into what that is. Uh, but last year when Jason was still co-hosting Clockwise with me, we did a crossover with, um, Marco Armit and Tiffany Armit on top four. And that was delightful. Uh, so I encourage you, uh, to, uh, as Katie and David have said, support Relay FM. There are a ton of great shows, fantastic people, and you just get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside from helping, helping your favorite podcasters make a living. All right. So, uh, now that the lights are paid for, let's get to work, uh, so, so Dan, you did it uh, for years. You were talking about this. I, I, I thought it was when Katie said earlier, Dan recently wrote his first novel. I'm thinking you wrote this novel a long time ago, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it goes back to, I mean, the genesis of the idea goes back to when I was in college. That is how long I was thinking about some of these uh, elements of this. Uh, the actual book itself, this particular work, I would say dates back to 2000, I want to say 2009, 2008 or 9, um, when this, which is when I actually started writing it. So, you know, it took eight or nine years from start to finish. And that's, uh, that's a lot of time, as you said up front. That is a lot of time to be working on a single project. Uh, and it certainly changed a lot in those interview times, but it was also a huge learning experience for me. And I think that's the biggest part of it. Yeah. And so one thing we're going to do is we're going to put in the show notes, a link to Dan's webpage where he's got the Caledonian Gambit webpage. And I think that's probably the best place to buy it. My guess is if you bought it through Dan's website, it goes out to Amazon and all the other places. So you'll get, um, you'll get the book where from whatever vendor you want. My guess is Dan will get a little cut of that. So make sure you go get it there. (laughs) Thank you. And it's a great book. I mean, I'm not saying this just because Dan is a bunk bed buddy, which sounds a little weird. <laughs> wow, David. Yeah, it does sound a little weird. 
I'm saying that because it's a great book. It's science fiction plus a little spy stuff. We're not going to talk about the subject of the book today because I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a great book. So you should go read it. Um, but uh, but let's go back to the planning stages. You said, you know, the idea started kicking around a long time ago. Uh, well, we all know you're a geek, Dan. What did you do when you first started coming up with an idea for a work of fiction? How did you start, you know, putting it together? Here's the interesting thing. I'll tell the, the funny story about the way where I came up with this is uh, so way back in college. Just, this is 2002. Um, I had been reading this science fiction series uh, that I really enjoyed, and I was like, "Oh man, I'd love to write something like that." And this was not by any means the first idea I'd had for for a book. So you know. I had a lot of experience trying to document and, and outline and note take and, and all of that. Um, I won't say I was particularly good at it. I've never been a great note taker. Uh, for whatever reason, my brain is not wired that way. And so I don't tend to take notes like, like when I was in lectures and classes, I would not take notes. Uh, one of my favorite stories about that is I'm sitting in an English class uh, and my friend, who is also in this class with me, looks over and she's really impressed because I'm writing all this stuff down. And she's thinking to herself, Dan never takes notes about class. What is going on? And she looked closer and realized I was actually writing something not at all related to class. Like I was writing a story in class because I was not paying any attention. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of my note taking skills. Um, so I honestly just started jotting down ideas in the margins of my class notebook. I remember being in like a seminar or something. I can't remember which one because obviously I was not paying attention uh, and starting to jot down ideas in the back of my notebook for characters and uh, setting and just sort of like random ideas here and there. I actually still have it lying around here. I found it while I was digging at cleaning out some old files, but it's really disorganized. It's really just, you know, jotting down ideas here and there. Uh, and and having sort of this mishmash amalgam of things, some of which, honestly, it's funny, some of them make their way all through to the finished book, you know, that came out 15 years later. Uh, some of them got discarded along the way. Uh, it, it, it was just sort of like a very like a brainstorming type thing. And, and at that point, I didn't have an, you know, iPhones weren't out. I probably had a laptop, but I wasn't taking it to class in those days. I really, most most people didn't bring laptops to class in the early 2000s. So it was really just using like a notebook. And that was a, ended up being a very good freeform way to just sort of come up with the earliest ideas. So did you, um like, I don't know, what was your major in college? I mean, did you study how to write fiction or have any yeah, training? I kind of did. Uh, my background is I have a degree in English. Uh, and that was always what I wanted to do. Uh, I've always been big into writing and literature and all of that. So I took a, some creative writing courses in college. I took some screenwriting courses. I took a lot of stuff that was, you know, analyzing works of fiction and the like. Uh, so, yeah, my background really is in writing. In fact, the, the technology has always <laughs> was more of a sideline for me for a long time. So I do have some training in there. Now, did you have any idea when you were jotting down these notes in the margins that you you wanted to actually turn this into a novel one day? Or did you think, oh, I'm just killing time. I'm just daydreaming. Maybe, you know, this will never be of anything. Or was it actually that was your intent? I mean, I certainly that was my intent. I've always wanted to be a novelist. I've always wanted to write books. Um, I... I mean, in a lot of cases, it was more aspirational than anything else, because for years I had tried to write things I'd never been able to complete a novel. Uh, and so I had had a lot of attempts where I sort of started out and I would write, you know, as many as like 10 or 20,000 words and sort of 
throw it out because I realized like I didn't know what I was doing. Like I hadn't thought it through or I hadn't planned it or I realized I would get so far and I'm like, I don't know what happens next. Um, and so it, that turned out to be, and that's still a challenge in some days, but I, I, I do try to work a little harder up front now to try and think the things through all the way. Uh, and, and it's sort of, I, there, so <laughs> there are two sort of general schools of thought on, on writing. Um, well, there are many, but there, there are two that I hear come up a lot. Uh, they get used a lot as terms, and there's plotters and pantsers. Uh, and if you're not familiar with these, a plotter is someone who methodically writes down, you know, an outline, every single thing that's going to happen. They go through and they sort of, you know, have the whole plot in their head written or written down, plotted out, detail by detail, all the way through. Then you have your pantsers, which is closer to what I do which is writing by the seat of your pants. You never know exactly what's going to happen next, but you're just going to keep writing until you figure it out. And I think that most people don't really fall into just one or the other camp. I think they tend to be a mix of two. Um, but for me, I've definitely always been much more on the pantser side of, I'm just going to sort of sit down and start writing and see where things go from there. I like being surprised by my own writing. It gets you into trouble because you do get 20,000, 30,000 words into a book and are like, oh... I screwed something up like five chapters ago. I got to throw out a bunch of stuff or I got to rework a bunch of stuff. So it's not without its risks. Um, but hey, I like to live dangerously. Well, I would think that that's really a thing like fiction also versus nonfiction. I've written several nonfiction books. I've never had any kind of writer's block because that's something where you really do outline the whole thing. And then it's just kind of cranking widgets to get get the whole thing built up. I don't I don't know anybody that writes nonfiction as a pantser. Or maybe they do. I think that'd be very hard. I mean, there's the amount of research in general that you need to do makes that kind of prohibitive. And it's not to say there isn't research in fiction as well, but what you're doing is so much of a creative endeavor in terms of spinning up these things, ideas out of whole cloth, that it is certainly possible to do that. But I try to do broader outlines now. I'm working. That's sort of like my biggest goal for improving my process is trying to come up with better ways to outline. And I've read a few books and ideas on ways to outline stories and i've tried out a few of them over time and i have one that i i like um but i i haven't always found it to be 100 percent successful but it is good in terms of giving me a high level framework of what i'm going to do i remember reading a book once i think it might have been by stephen king or some some fiction author who said that sometimes the characters will surprise you as you start writing the character longer you get to know them better and you realize they'll do things that you didn't think they would have done as as crazy as that sounds i i can see how that would would be true it definitely happens i mean you you definitely get to points where characters or plots seem to take a turn that you realize when you're writing it is organic and makes sense from where these characters are um and sometimes you know that's because you have really fleshed out these characters and you're just sort of beholden to making sure that they act like you know people uh i think honestly the thing that nobody talks about is when characters won't do things that you need them to do and you're like oh man i need you to kill this person here and the character's like nah i i just don't <laughs> i'm not feeling it i'm not feeling like i'm gonna kill this person and you're like but they have to die for the plot <laughs> um so yeah i i think that characters definitely do take on a certain amount of life of their own obviously you're always the one in charge and you you can do whatever you want to them but they y you are like I said, you have to make them seem like people. And so in that sense, um, they are sometimes going to diverge from the plan that you had uh, ahead of time. The, the whole the old adage is no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And I think the same thing is true about writing a novel. 
So did you set this aside for some period of time and then ultimately decide to come back to it? Or have you have you been working on it off and on um, since the initial inception of the idea? Well, I worked on, um, so I had the initial inception of the idea, and I think I probably jotted down some notes at the time and maybe tried to write a few pages of it, but I didn't have a very clear idea where it was going. So I actually wrote a whole bunch of other stuff in the uh, early 2000s, including two and a half novels worth of a trilogy uh, that was sort of a post-apocalyptic science fiction trilogy that will never see the light of day. Um, And I, you know, sort of threw myself into that, and that occupied a lot of time. Um, and so I put this down for a while and every once in a while I started thinking about it and maybe came back and jotted down a few pages here and there or tried to write a chapter. But I always think I was lacking some elements of it to really turn it into a flowing story. So it wasn't until I sat down back in 2008, 2009 to really dive into this that I honestly like was like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to finish it. I don't even remember if I said that at the time, but like I was more serious about it. I had written stuff in between uh, i'd done naNoWriMo national novel writing month a bunch of times and that had really helped me um get used to writing more frequently i was a professional writer by that point um and so you know i was a lot felt a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident in what i was doing and so at that point i sat down and i wrote it all the way through in the period of you know the first draft took me maybe a year ish so it was all the revising that took the next seven years <laughs> So can, let me just wind back a little bit, though. So between the time 2002 college student Dan started noodling in the back of his notebook and the time that you said, OK, I'm going to sit down and write this Caledonian Gambit book. Um, did you I mean, had you done further work on it or was it just something you just was out there as a potential idea for a future project? I it was in the back of my head. I always, you know, sort of in the back burner. And I, at any given time, I have a handful of ideas in the back burner that are things I'm sort of ruminating on and trying to figure out like, is there a story in here? What is that story? And so I definitely came back to it every once in a while and jotted down more notes or tried to take a crack at writing something. Um, but I, I think I wrote a short story at one point that was based in the universe. I keep thinking I'm going to release that on my website, but I keep going back and reading it and I'm like, Oh God, I don't like this. <laughs> so I, I need to revise this like way more before I ever publish it. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of dabbled with this idea, but I, again, I was missing some elements. I wasn't sure about some, some parts of the plot and some of the characters, and so, yeah, I, I sort of bounced in and out, but I was not really putting it, giving it my full attention until I really sat down to write it in the first place. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by PDF Pen from Smile Software. They love Mac Power Users so much, they set up a website for you. Go to smilesoftware.com slash MPU to learn more. If you work on a Mac, there's a good chance you've worked on PDFs with the built-in preview application. There's a lot to love about Preview, but it's really wanting on a lot of levels if you really work with PDFs. That's where Smile Software's PDF Pen comes in. PDF Pen is the next level for managing PDFs on your Mac. There are just so many tools in PDF Pen that will never make their way into Preview. PDF Pen is the PDF application I use every day on my Mac. So let me just give you a few examples. Using PDF Pen, I can highlight and draw and make annotations and comments on all of my PDF documents, which I do all the time. You can also sign and fill out forms. If you got a form, PDF Pen can handle it. In fact, if you use the pro version of PDF Pen, you can create your own beautiful forms. 
Another feature that you're never going to see in preview is the ability to scan and OCR documents in PDF Pen. Using PDF Pen, I can take a document that doesn't have optical character recognition in it, push a single button, and then it's done for me. The PDF Pen even straightens the document out so it aligns the text on the page appropriately. And once you've OCR'd that document, it's going to have that hidden text layer that allows you to highlight text or block and copy text out of it. Using PDF Pen, you can even make corrections to that text if the OCR is wrong in any way. If you've got some secret information in your PDF, but you need to send it to somebody, they even have a redaction tool that allows you to draw a box over the secret information and it removes it from the PDF. So nobody on the other side can ever get that out of there. And then perhaps my favorite feature in PDF Pen is you can take a PDF document, press a button, and export it to Microsoft Word. There are a bunch more features like file and audio attachments, uh, digital signatures, and, and just a whole lot more. But I think the bottom line is if you find yourself banging your head into the ceiling of preview, there's a solution for you. And you can find it at smilesoftware.com MPU. Whether you go with the standard or the pro version, PDF Pen can take care of you on your Mac. Thanks, Smile, for supporting the Mac Power users. All right, so at some point you said, I am going to write this book. And uh, and you picked up, you've been noodling on it for all these years. Uh, how did you get the job done? Um, so at the time, this is uh, interesting, I used, there's an app I really used to like. Um, and it was by my good friend, Gus Mueller, who does Flying Meat, which you might know uh, Acorn most prominently. But he used to have this app called Voodoo Pad. And I loved this app at the time. And essentially what it was was a personal wiki contained in an app. So you could create all these documents. You could hyperlink them together. You could um, essentially, I think you even could publish it to HTML or something. Um, but it was a cool little app and it was great for note-taking. And I started using it because I wanted to try and track uh, certain details of another book series I was working on where I was like, oh man, I need to write pages and like like little note files for each of these characters so I can keep in track of certain details, like stupid things like I can't remember what color this character's eyes are, you know. And I found I really like built this whole big little wiki for um, that series. I was like, oh, I should start using it to organize my thoughts about this science fiction idea I've had for a while. And so I started jotting down things here and there, and I really created this big, um, you know, like, set of notes about the characters and etc. Um, and then I ran into this thing because I had backed to stored these files on, at the time, Apple's cloud storage solution, which was iDisk, way back iDisk. in the day. Ouch. Oh, iDisk. Ouch. <laughs> iDisk does not so Voodoo Voodoo Pad used um bundles for documents, right? Like which is pretty commonplace now, but at the time was not really you most stuff used flat files. And something happened and the files disappeared. Like the packages were there, but all the files inside them were gone. And that was where all the data was. Oh, did you and have to dig through them all individually and get yourself out? I couldn't even do that. They were just gone. Like, I, I actually wrote a Macworld story about this at the time because I was super angry about it. And I was, like, on the chat with, like, Apple support. And they're like, yeah, we don't have backups of it. I'm like, how do you not have backups of it? Like, so I remember getting just very upset about this because I lost these two files, which had all this information in it. And I never got them back. So I had to, like, reconstruct it from memory. Uh, and so at that point, I, you know, a part of it was disheartening, but it was also kind of like a spur to, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write down everything I remember. And I'm just gonna start 
writing this story. Um, and so I sort of racked my brains and tried to remember everything. And I opened up, uh, man, I don't even try to remember what app I was using at the time. It was probably still Scrivener, which I'm still using now. Um, and essentially I just started writing down these ideas and not everything obviously that was in that first draft made it in there. Uh, in fact, there's one whole sequence that I wrote very early on, which was intended for this book, but ended up, if let's just say, hypothetically were there to be a sequel to this book, it would be in that book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I started writing um, in probably in Scrivener at that point um, and just sort of cranking out um, my ideas. And I really like Scrivener is my um, my word processor of choice when it comes to fiction. Uh, I still use it now. I'm a big fan of the app. It really works with the way that my mind works. Uh, and it's just, it feels comforting and, and cozy to me. I, I used to use Scrivener a lot, especially for legal writing. And, and the, but the, the joke was that the app was always made to write novels. I mean, that was the fundamental purpose of it, but it, it lends itself to other, other functions if you want. So you, you're actually using it for what it was intended. I know. I'm. Yeah. How how weird. <laughs> now, how far down the stack did you go? Because like, I, I there's a ton of features in Scrivener I don't use, like you know, character development tools and things like that. Um, but I would imagine if you're writing a novel, boy, the it's almost like the sky's the limit for how how geeky you can get inside Scrivener. You know, it's funny. I I'm kind of the opposite. I've always been a very bare bones tool guy, and that's not just a BB Edit reference, though I do use BB Edit. Um. I'm not a person who uses a lot of those bells and whistles because I think, frankly, I think a lot of them are distractions when it comes to getting things done. You could spend a lot of time like writing and Scrivener does have these great templates for these sorts of things. Um, but with the way my brain works about it, I tend not to spend a lot of time using those aspects of it to sort of jot down my ideas. I tend to work much more from very simple like so I have a folder in my Scrivener file and in that folder is a document for each chapter of the book. So chapter one, chapter two, etc. Some people I've seen actually use the Scrivener documents to break scenes out and they'll have like folders be chapters. That to me does not like my brain does not work that way. I don't necessarily think of things as being like discrete scenes. Uh, I think in chapters, it's just the way I've always done it. Um, yeah, but but going back to your old uh, the thing you were doing, well, I forget the app for for Gus Gus's app. I mean, you were tracking like um, character information and stuff. How would you do that now? Yeah, so instead, uh, honestly, what I would do is I would have a separate folder in Scrivener that was just sort of like a notes folder, and in there I might have just like essentially just more documents that are like, all right, this document will be a timeline. Like this document will have like a timeline of all the stuff that I've planned out for this universe. And it's not like nothing fancy. It's just like, here is a, it was all done relative to the book. So it'd be like 25 years before this book, this happens. 10 years before the book, this happens. Five years before the book, this happens. And so I would just have a text file for that. I would have a text file for some characters um, just to write like very rough biographies, essentially, of them. Like this guy grew up here. This is like what his dad did. This is what his mom did. Like this is where he lived. This is how he got into the job that he's got now um and so i would do that for a handful of things they weren't super well organized and then i just have like a lot of files that are just random notes and ideas um loosely organized sometimes it's like uh, here are things i want to work at later in this book 
here are questions that still need to be answered like while i'm writing it like um you know who is interested in this thing how did this happen um why are these two characters at odds etc like those questions still need to be answered because like i said a lot of times i'm com- coming up with this stuff as i go along and i need to keep track so that you don't end up going back and being like oh yeah these two characters are totally arguing about something and i still don't know what that is um so yeah i have a lot of files that are just sort of notes or oftentimes ideas for future things in this series like oh you know three books from now i'm thinking about i'll do i'll answer this question or i'll deal with this character's backstory or what have you so yeah it it tends to be a very loose process for me i don't end up using though scrivener has all these great tools i often just like I'm much more like rough and tumble when it comes to writing my notes. That's fine. Cause that's exactly how I do nonfiction writing in Scrivener. I've got, you know, I, I call them research, but I mean, I've got different notes with all sorts of things in it. And then I've got the, the other set of notes that have the stuff I'm actually writing in it. Did you use the organizational tools in Scrivener? Like, you know, you can have the note cards where you can restore things. Did, did that stuff come in handy at all? Yeah, I've tried that in a couple of times and um, I like the idea behind it. But I've found that a lot of times my biggest problem using those are that they're not tactile enough. Like if I want note cards, I want to use actual note cards because for me, just having the ability to reach out, physically touch things and move them around, I find much more um, resonating for the way that my brain works. So I would I've tried to deal with the, the note cards in Scrivener. I like the fact that that's an option in there. But it was it always felt like busy work to me to spend a lot of time like, all right, I'm going to sort of fill out these note cards with my ideas and then I can move them around. It's like, no, I want to skip out the filling things out phase. I just want to go straight to like the moving pieces around. So did your project stay in Scrivener the entire time? At some point, my guess is you had to pull it out to either share it with an editor or to make tweaks or those types of things. Yeah. Um, so I one of the reasons I picked Scrivener, one of my favorite abilities of it, is that its export features are awesome. Um, specifically, I wanted to be able to share this with beta readers, so people who would take a look at my book and give me comments, etc. And the easiest thing to be able to do for a lot of them was to be able to generate an ebook, which Scrivener does very well. Because not only can it generate an EPUB that you can send to somebody and have them open in iBooks on their iPad or iPhone or even on their Mac, um, but it can also generate a Kindle ebook. So you can, I can like basically make a copy and a Mobi file and I can send that to somebody and they can sideload it onto their Kindle or email it to themselves, whatever Amazon lets you do. And I really like that because it, it felt like a real book, right? Like it's like, Oh, I have an ebook. You can read it on your e-reader. Um, and that to me was a lot of fun, but a lot of people, um, so my agent, for example, uh, prefers to read things generally in PDF. So Scrivener can make a PDF, which is great. Eventually when I did work with an editor, um they use word still amazingly so i had to turn it into a word doc um and so i you know scrivener lets you do that too so that was my favorite thing about scrivener is that a lot of apps would you know that were that kind of proprietary app would let you like stick you in their format and basically make it really hard to get it out and turn it into anything else but scrivener makes it super easy to turn it into basically anything you need so it lasted until about the point where I need to send to an editor and they made changes, at which point I was kind of stuck in the word loop at that point. So let's talk about your beta readers. That sounds like a, a great idea and one that uh, I think I probably wouldn't have thought of. How did you solicit people for your beta reader program? And then what did you ask them to do for you? 
Well, you know, there are a lot of a lot of authors do this. Um, obviously, I think that most people tend to have somebody else read their work before it goes out, whether it be a partner or a trusted friend, etc. And that's basically what I did is I ended up sending, um, you know, basically there were a handful of people who are friends and family members that I was like, you know what? I know you read a lot of science fiction. We've talked about a lot of science fiction. I know you've read books that are similar to the book that I'm trying to write. And so I'm interested in having you read this. And some people were for particular skills so for example um my cousin's husband is a high school physics teacher and this is a science fiction book so i wanted to basically have input from someone who knew science way better than me so i sent this to him and i was like i would love your comments on the sort of science aspects of this um other people i went for more of a mechanical like um fiction reading skill so for example um my best friend from college is just he's really good at finding plot holes that's just like he is super sharp when it comes to that kind of thing. He's also a doctor, but I didn't want his medical expertise. I just wanted his ability to find plot holes. So I sent this to him so that he could be like, oh, yeah, why don't they just do this? And I'd be like, oh, that's a great question. I should come up with an answer for that. Um, I also found some people who were writers um, specifically. So Jason Snell, my former boss at Macworld, also podcasting partner, writing partner, etc. Um, I had him write it. In fact, when he did, uh, we did an episode over at The Incomparable uh, when the book came out and he talked about how he found an email that I sent him back in, I want to say 2010, um, that was like, here, thanks for reading my book. I think I've got most of the problems ironed out. So that was like seven years before I got published. <laughs> Spoiler, I did not have most of the problems ironed out. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I tried to pick sort of more uh, a group of people that I thought would be really interested in reading it. Um, there were some late editions to people who read it like once it was much getting much closer to publication and still had some thoughts and comments in there. And one of the things I've been striving to do a little more with projects I'm working on now is also up the diversity and inclusion of people who read my book early, both like finding more gen having more gender diversity, having more racial diversity, et cetera. Like, I think that's more and more important for me as I uh, develop my voice and, and try to write books that are a little more broad and inclusive. So that's uh, it's a it's a challenge, too, because you want to find people that you trust to give you notes. Um, and, you know, you're not going to listen to everything they say, even the people that you trust and, and really like, you know, think that they're sharp and smart and come up with really great points. Sometimes they come up with things that are not things you want to deal with. Um, and not just because they're hard, but because like I did something in a specific way. You may not agree with that, but I think that my way is right. You really got to kind of pick your battles there. Yeah, it's your book at the end of the day. Exactly. And you got to you got to be true to yourself to a certain extent. You got to be open to criticism, but you should also not be afraid to stick to your guns when it is something that is important. And the old saying, a can camel is a horse designed by a committee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Did you have any specific requests for your beta readers on how they would send you feedback? I mean, just, you know, random email notes or did you want, you know, specific notes in line or just they were reading it as a beta reader. So anything they would send you was gravy. Any, how did that work? Yeah, I, I like basically my goal. And this was again, why I like Scrivener's broad export features is I wanted to make it as easy for them as possible. So it's like, if you want to send me, um, notes that are, you know, you just write an email full of stuff. That's fine. I'll figure it out. If you want to, uh, mark up this document as like a PDF. Cool. Yeah, that works. Um, if you want to, write footnotes and you know iBooks or whatever 
I think it can get notes out of iBooks now, but it's kind of weird. It was always kind of weird in the early days of like trying to figure out then what it lined up to. I'm not even sure how you get notes out of a Kindle document, frankly. Uh, I think that's the reason my agent favors PDF is it's really easy to annotate a PDF. And so when I get comments from him on a manuscript, they're usually... Um, he sends me notes, but he also sends, will send me the marked up PDF document so I can specifically find like, oh, that's the sentence you're talking about where I use that word rather than having to search through the documents and find a word. So I don't have a specific like preference for it because I know that it's going to differ highly from person to person. I don't want to be prescriptive about like, you must write notes this way because I think then a lot of people won't do it. So whatever works for them works for me. Yeah, and then and then meanwhile the the document itself is living in Scrivener at this point. So Right, right. You can go through and make changes at will based on the notes you get back. Yep, and I and I track uh not track changes. So Scrivener doesn't really have a track changes feature, but it does have an annotation and comments feature. And so uh when I'm using Scrivener and I mark stuff, I usually uh, I've highlighted stuff in the past, but I've found that to be a little more difficult to find when I want to find it later. So really, I usually generally use the comment feature where you can just create an inline comment on something. And sometimes if I have like a detailed note, um, I will write in the little you know note that it creates like, oh, you know, got to figure out why this person's motivation is this. But sometimes I just mark it like and that's enough for me to know, like, oh, I got to come back and look at this thing later. Now, when you're doing the writing and initial, you know, feedback and editing process, it sounds like Scrivener is one of the key apps for you. Is Scrivener the only app you're using at that point to write the book? Um, mostly the other app that I've started using more and more is the Notes app on iOS and on macOS. Um, I think because it's always available and is syncs you know syncs across all my devices and it's gotten more and more powerful as time has gone by it's it sort of ended up becoming my default repository for hey i'm out right now i've got an idea for the book uh, i need to write it down somewhere so i don't forget it and so notes has become my go-to thing for that for many years at that point i was using simple note which was kind of a similar thing where you know synced back and forth um i played with evernote for a little while but it ended up being just too much for me uh and i just didn't want to deal with it so it never really went anywhere for me but i would say that you know the vast majority of my work is done in scrivener a little bit is done in notes and i'll you know so i didn't use this for this book but the stuff the the tool that i've started using more for um doing outlining is actually keynote which is a little weird but i it turned out to just be something that worked really well with the outlining process that I've started to try and use more. Okay. I, I need an explanation on that one, Dan. How does Keynote become your outliner? I know. It's super weird. So Keynote, um, the, the technique I use was introduced to me by one of my former agents, who is um, uh, still an agent, a guy named Sam Morgan. He uh, moved firms, so he's now over a firm called uh, Foundry. Um, and Sam and I were sitting down in a, uh, in a grocery store cafeteria or something at a con a few years ago and he's like let me tell you about this really cool thing i learned um and it's it comes from um dan Harmon, who is the writer behind community among other things um and he has this technique for mapping out a story and uh, i'm gonna have to look up exactly what it's called if it has a uh, a word for it but essentially it's a it is a uh, a circle uh and it's sort of this story structure thing um that is the progress of a story, right? Like, a story. so it looks like a circle that is essentially, you know, 
bisected, right? Like because it has like a cross in it, and it look it's kind of like a clock. You start at noon, you work your way around, and stuff happens at each sort of like number on the dial. And it's it's basically pandered on your your typical like hero's journey to a certain extent, but also because so much of what he has done is like sitcom work. It is also sort of like a formula that like you use to break down an episode. And so I really was like, oh, this is cool. I dig this. Um, I'm going to start using this. And like I started out just like, you know, use a notebook. I drew it and I was like, I would write my little notes around the circle, etc. Um, but I realized eventually it's like, oh, I'm, I want to use this for multiple projects. I want to turn this into a template. So I essentially built a keynote deck where the first slide is just this diagram and i i liked keynote because i like how precise its diagramming tools are like the snapping to grids and stuff like that it's very satisfying for me um i really enjoy it and and it's on all your devices and it syncs exactly exactly it's always there it's free i don't have to worry about it um and i yeah it's a it's a good tool i like being able to again like move stuff around and then i basically made each subsequent slide is one of the steps on on that journey and so i can write my notes and just little bullet points on each slide like all right this is step one gotta i'm gonna write down like you know so step one generally is like who who is the protagonist and it's like all right so i wrote down my notes about the protagonist and then step two is like what do they want and i write that down and then step three is like they get pushed out of their comfort zone (laughs) and you're like, all right, how does that happen? And so you go around the circle and I just would like, I let me have detailed notes on individual slides. Um, It let me see the overall picture. And I just, I just really dig the way that it works. I'm not saying I'm religious about using this because I'm still sort of figuring out what works for me, but I really like that. Interestingly enough, there was a similar project. I just got my um, a Kickstarter backing, uh, just got my Kickstarter rewards for backing this project, which is called the Story Clock Notebook, which actually uses a very similar setup. And so they've got these notebooks that have like this circular type diagram and also have a log for like, they're mostly intended for like screenplays um, of like things that happen at specific times. But I dig this idea. I haven't really got a chance to break mine open and try them yet. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really cool way of thinking about uh, a story from a high level point of view. This episode of Mac Powers Users is brought to you in part by 1Password. You can learn more and get a discount by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. And make sure you type in MPU in all caps. So I talk to people all the time who have trouble with passwords. In fact, I was on a conference call with somebody the other day asking about a particular account. And they said, hang on, hang on. I, I need to go to my password spreadsheet and figure out what that password is. I can never remember any of my passwords. And so I waited while they went to the spreadsheet and looked through all of their passwords and then came back with a password that was super memorable and really bad. And I said to them, you know, have you ever considered a password manager? And they said, well, I've I've got everything in the spreadsheet and I just have a couple of passwords that I rotate around, but I never remember which one's which. So I always have to go back to my spreadsheet. And inside I died a little bit. Because do you know how dangerous this type of activity is? First off, if that spreadsheet were ever to fall in the wrong hands, anybody would have the digital keys to her kingdom. And secondly, she's not using particularly good or particularly strong passwords, particularly if she's rotating them around various sites. If any of her sites get compromised, then the first thing a a password thief is going to do is start trying them on other random sites. Well, with 1Password, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to worry about random password schemes that you put in spreadsheets or trying to sneak copies of your passwords in various places like 
Yes, we know. A lot of people hide passwords and contacts. It's not that secret anymore. 1Password takes care of all of that stuff for you. It will help you create strong, unique passwords, and then it will remember them. So you don't have the same password floating around for multiple websites, and you don't have to remember any of these passwords. All you have to remember is your 1Password, and that will give you the keys to access and unlock and automatically fill all of your other password information across the variety of sites. So if you know someone who's going through these password gymnastics, tell them to head over to onepassword.com and check it out. And I promise you, they'll thank you later. So thanks to One Password for their support of the show. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more. So Dan, we've talked a little bit about Scrivener. We've talked about using Keynote. Um, and we've talked about some of the, the note-taking apps that you use. Um, any other tools that you use from a digital standpoint? Uh, for for writing and organizing and planning your book? Um, you know, I honestly have not felt like there are that many. I, I've delved into a couple small things. Like, I mean, I've used Google Docs a little bit to get people's feedback. But, like, for note-taking, um, I've never really gotten into the whole, like, big outlining program, right? Like, I'm not, like, an omni-outliner user. It would always seem like overkill for what I was trying to do. So honestly, most of the stuff for me is note taking, a little bit of outlining in Keynote, um, and mostly just working in Scrivener. Honestly, like it's kind of boring. Like, and and that's you know what I said up front a little bit about the tools aspect of this is that you know workflows are are great, um, but a lot of times in writing, especially in something like novel writing where there is so much opportunity to procrastinate about things, uh, the more tool bells and whistles, et cetera, that your tool has, the more tempting it is sometimes to spend a lot of time doing that instead of actually doing your writing work. Yeah, at some point, the hardest thing is just moving the cursor, just getting the cursor to go right across the screen. Absolutely. And I'll say Scrivener (laughs) is great in that it has its like um, target word count set up, which I really dig, um, which is if you're, it's great, especially if you're doing something like NaNoWriMo and you know, you have to like log a certain number of words a day, Um, being able to like have a tangible goal and be like, yep, I need like 1600 words today. Um, It's occasionally a little bit uh, anxiety inducing, but it's also a good impetus to be like, yep, I'm going to hit my goal. I'm going to turn that little bar green. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to be pretty boring in my tool usage, but that's because I, I just want to, I want to get stuff done. Now having written this book and hypothetically, maybe a few more, um, and being a geek, you know, former writer from Macworld and a real smart guy. Um, is there anywhere along the process in the, in writing the books that you feel the technology let you down or, or places where it could be improved? Oh man. Um, yeah, I, I've run into a couple programs here and there that purport to like help you do, uh, certain elements of writing. Well, in fact, I reviewed one at Macworld, and it was the, I gave it the worst rating of any product I had ever reviewed. It was really bad. <laughs> uh, I don't remember what the name is, so I won't like disparage it here, but it was essentially an idea of like, it's like a little database for like keeping your characters in, but it was just so rigid in its work. Um, is rigid in the way it worked and it, it, it trapped all your, your, data in this particular file format or whatever and i just i I felt it was so frustrating and annoying and i remember there being some other really big show-stopping flaws with it uh and i kind of wished there was a better way you know what the technology lets me down on um i gave this i gave a talk a few years ago at singleton that was a little bit about writing um singleton the former conference run by um, my good friend guy english which was up in montreal which is like a little indie mac conference for it ran for three years i think three or four 
Um, and I gave a talk one year that was about um, the craft of writing. And one of the frustrations I mentioned during this talk was, so my back, my other part of my background was doing IT, IT and web development. And so I programmed for a few years uh, in PHP and I did like, you know, HTML, JavaScript, a little bit, that kind of stuff. And one of the things I'm always super jealous of when I sit down and do programming is debuggers, which is, it tells you, you know, oftentimes some places better than others, but like, oh, you forgot to declare this variable here, or you forgot to like clear your memory registers, whatever. Um, and I always loved that you could like, you would hit a button to compile your program and it'd be like, oh, I couldn't compile it because here are all the problems. And I'm sure that's super frustrating for some people. But to me, you know, you write a book, there is no tool to be like, oh, you know, you left this plot thread hanging in chapter three. <laughs> like, you should probably resolve that. Um, and so I had like a little, I made a mocked up a little uh, dialogue box that was like a error, uh, Chekhov's gun on stage in act one, not fired in act three or something like that was my uh, my little my little gag about that. But I, I really, I, I miss those kinds of tools. I have no idea if you could ever write something like that that would like, parse your book and figure out where the problems were a uh, part of me feels like not without some serious ai that we don't have yet because meanwhile it would end up looking like that weird you know that summarize feature that word has where it's like yeah just put your whole novel in hit summarize and it'll give you a blurb and it's usually kind of nonsensical <laughs> i think the problem is when the computers get smart enough to do that for you they'll just write better novels than we would anyway so <laughs> i'm putting myself out of a job yeah. it's funny though there's a lot of businesses or careers where where uh, everything you do resolves to a calculable format, like ones and zeros. I represent a lot of software developers in law practice, and it's really hard for them when I talk to them about a, negotiating a contract or something because it's not a one and zero. It doesn't come down to an easily calculable thing that runs or doesn't run, and uh, so much in life doesn't lend itself to that. So it is. It is. I can. I totally understand where you're coming from, but. Uh, my guess is that you you have a problem, my friend, for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> or at least we hope you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's not a terrible problem to have, I guess. So that's I'll I'll learn to deal with it. But it's just one of those things that that gets me envious of people in the programming. I'm sure there are plenty of things that they are envious about the writing lifestyle. They shouldn't be because they probably make way more money <laughs> and have an easier time with some things. But hey. All right. So you got a you got a novel done, and you've you've gone through your beta process and now you're getting out there you're starting to look into getting maybe an agent or getting it published um how do you go about doing that well i know a lot of people who have gotten agents and i i think there are lots of different paths to it so the the sort of thing that you first find when you're like really investigating how do I get an agent? Now, you don't need an agent. And I put a big asterisk next to that, which is to say you don't need an agent in order to basically convince someone to get your to buy your book, like an editor, essentially. So your ultimate goal is to sell an editor, um, to have an editor say, I want to publish this book. Um, you don't need an agent to do that. It really helps. And at some point in that process, even if you don't didn't use an agent to broker that deal or like, or at least get to your, your manuscript in front of an editor, you probably should look into getting an agent because the whole thing, like you were just talking about contracts and the like having an agent on your side is your, as your advocate is a huge deal. Can, can you back up just a minute before we get too much deeper in that? Just explain to us briefly who the parties are involved in this, because 
the the agent doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, I don't think, with publishing your book. And then the editor maybe works for a publisher. Can, can you give us a little sure, thumbnail right, overview? Yeah. Who, who, I'll give you who? Definite, define some terms. Uh, so, yeah. So the publisher is obviously the company that create, uh, puts out your book, um, creates physical object, markets it, etc. The editor is generally an employee who works at the publisher. Uh, a lot of times these days... We're talking not just like about like a copy editor. We're talking about someone who is sort of a more of like a product manager, maybe. Um, so somebody who actually like looks at the book, reads it through, decides they want to acquire it, um, and then like works with the author to uh, improve it and get to the point where it's ready to be published. The agent is sort of an intermediary in there, um, but the agent works for the author. And that's really important for anybody who is out there because there are a lot of scam artists out there who will try to take advantage of it. And the important tenet that I was always taught and is always good to remember is that money flows towards the author. So you don't pay an agent, you don't pay an editor, you get paid as a writer. That is how it should work. If somebody is charging you to read your manuscript or to be your agent and represent you, that person is probably a scam artist. Um, there are some really good resources out there for keeping track of that. Uh, I think one is called Writer Beware. Um, it's definitely worth like any time you're dealing with someone to make sure you look them up, do your research, and and find out whether or not they're a reputable you know person in the field. Um, so a lot of people. There's basically two primary ways that you would then get your your book out, which is one, you would send it to an editor at a publisher. Uh, generally after doing a lot of research and finding out like, oh, this editor publishes books like my book. Um, this editor seems to be interested in this genre, etc. What happens then is your book goes into a big thing called a slush pile. It's about as charming as it sounds, which is say, these are all the unsolicited manuscripts, i.e. manuscripts that an editor has not requested or asked for. Uh, they generally get read by like an editorial assistant or an intern who will then, if they find anything in there that they think is worthwhile, pass it up to an editor. Most stuff doesn't get out of the slush pile. That's why it's the slush pile. Um, the percentages of things that make it from there to an actual published book are very, very low. They do happen. If you write an amazing, astounding book, you know, heck, it can make it out of the slush pile. Um, but it's a really hard path. The other alternative is to get an agent because the agents are the people who know the editors and they can help you get your book in front of uh, you know the right person to work with you on that. Getting an agent, unfortunately, is a lot like trying to send your mess your your manuscript into an editor, which is to they say they have their own slush piles. <laughs> they have their own slush piles. So generally, um, you would write a query letter that would be something like, "Hey, I have this book. It's about this. Are you interested in reading it?" Um, and they would either reply yes or no. Uh, some places the the workflows changed a little bit in years past. What with you know digital, right? Like I remember, I I wrote a book and submitted it to an agency. Coincidentally, the agent who now represents me uh, when I was like 24 and it was the first novel I completed. And in that day, I had to like print the whole thing out <laughs> and send it in, uh, which was crazy. <laughs> um, so fortunately, that's not a thing you generally have to do anymore. Pretty much every day's emails. Um, but so, yeah, the agent thing, you, you still have to kind of deal with uh, either querying or checking around. A lot of agents do like open submissions periods where they'll say, hey, I am open for you to query me or to submit a manuscript to me. So again, you got to do your research. You got to find out if this agent represents, uh, you know, authors that might be similar to you, um, what they've had published, etc. You got to go look at their websites. You got to find out if they take queries. Most importantly, with all of these things, whether you're submitting to an editor or submitting to an agent, 
all of these places have submission guidelines. You read those, you follow them to the letter. It's the most important thing because not following them will get your manuscript tossed immediately. They don't have the time to deal with people who are like not following those very simple rules, which are usually just here's how to format it. It could be as basic as like we don't take doc files. We take RTF files or send it to an email to this address. Don't attach it, but like send us, you know, a query first, like all these things. Every place has different submission guidelines. It really behooves you to read them and to follow them exactly because that's like it's like attendance. It's like 90 percent of it is showing up and like showing up, you know, dressed. (laughs) So that's that's really where you got to start. And then if you're lucky enough, you know, you get an agent and that's a that's a big deal. I will say I queried a number of agents and I also submitted to slush piles and open submissions periods for some publishers with this book and with previous books. And that works for some people for me it honestly became a bigger deal that i eventually i met an agent at a conference and i was introduced by an author who i had been like chatting with this was his agent and so he was like hey let me introduce you to my agent and i ended up talking with this guy for a while and you know at that point i had been working at macworld for a while so it was a really good like i could say yeah hey i'm a professional writer like i do this like and we you know chatted about you know, just small talk, etc. And at the end of our meeting, I was like, hey, I have written this book. Would you be interested in reading it? He gave me his card. He asked me to send it over. Uh, and yeah, there we go. That was like kind of where it started. So I find, and, and it's going to depend person to person, but I feel like I'm very used to going to conferences. Um, I'm used to dealing with people. I'm used to having to be sort of like uh, extroverted and outgoing. And so if that's your strength, play to it. Like, if you feel like, hey, I can talk and make conversation and just be generally sort of friendly, they'll remember you much more that way than if you're just a nameless person who has sent something in. Uh, you know, if you feel like you have to rely on the strength of your work, that's great. That's fine. Like if you've written something awesome, um, it will it will like out like if you have written something really good, like it will tend to get people's attention. Uh, and so in that case, again, it's really just about following the rules and making sure that you're not doing anything to piss anybody off on the way in, because that's that's the surest way to sort of get yourself tossed is to just not pay attention to what people are asking for. So how are you keeping track of all this? I mean, you've got submittals, you've got meetings. Um, I, I mean, sounds to me like it was quite a bit of work just kind of getting it out there yeah um it's definitely tricky and there's a lot of people i know who use different systems like people have spreadsheets like people are very methodical about like all right these places have these submission windows and i need to send this thing off and you know those are sort of log it in a spreadsheet for me it was much more ad hoc i had done my research i had found like you know, someone who I thought might be a, a similar uh, an agent who might be interested in my work. Um, and so in the earliest days, back in 2004 or so, when I was doing this, I was just sort of like, I'd send it out, I'd wait for it to come back, like a rejection to come back, let's be honest. And then I would find somebody else and I'd send it out. Because a lot of these places, at least back in that day, didn't accept multiple submissions, i.e. you couldn't submit the same work to multiple people at the same time. Um that might have changed by now. I'm not sure because I feel like turnaround is tends to be much quicker when you don't have to worry about postage. Um, but yeah, I I tend to do my filing method is generally my inbox, uh, and so I I mentioned this on other podcasts, but like I just I don't file any of my email. I just have everything in my inbox, which drives people crazy. Uh, 
Yeah, it's driving me crazy just thinking about it. But yeah, you don't want to know how many emails are in my inbox, David. I've talked about this on podcasts. It's bad. I think you talked about it on our show. Yeah, you, <laughs> you, I, you know, yeah. you can create like an archive folder. It's okay. Just select all and just. In fact, let's do it right now together. It's no, no, it's scary, Katie. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll think about it. I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to look into this. But I'm feeling like a little anxiety just thinking about it. But I flag stuff as I go in my email inbox, and if like there's something I need to do or a person I need to respond to, then I'll just put a flag on it. And then I like, especially in the current, I use Mail, um, especially in the current version of Mail on both iOS and macOS. There's just a little filter button, and I click it, and it shows me all my flag messages. Um, I really like that. It's really handy for me. So that's how I do a lot of my tracking of stuff. It's not the best system, I'm aware. But I feel like, again, anything that I have to spend time managing, like the overhead of it, tends to feel to me like it increases the amount of time I'm not actually doing the thing that I need to be doing. It's just like, it's it, to me, it always feels like make work. So it, that's my system. doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. Well, I mean, that's and that's the point, right? I mean, everybody's got to use what works for them. But but you were going through this for a while. I mean, you just said casually a minute ago when I was working on this in 2004. And I'm like, Dan, it's 2017 now. <laughs> this has been <laughs> well, that going was, on a while. That was the first stuff I was sending out. And that was, the you know, my first book that I ever wrote. Um, and I didn't, I was sort of still figuring out all of these steps and these processes and these workflows. And I admit that I didn't do, I did a little bit, but I wasn't like, I know people who are super hardcore about this, right? Like they find, they go and they do the research, they find like the 10 agents that they feel like they want to get, they make their list, they are just like uh, on point about like sending stuff out, getting it back in the rejection, like fine, that's great, that's rejected, I just go to the next one. I was much more, let's say, desultory about it, like, oh, maybe I'll send to this person over here. Oh, I got a rejection. I'm going to mope about that for a few weeks now. <laughs> so I was not, I was not like super well organized. And some of that was, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, I did a little bit of research, but not as much as I should have. Um, but yeah, it de again, depends on your personality, depends on how you handle those things. I, I was worse when I wrote the Mac at Work book. I, um, I just outlined the book, did the entire outline. I mailed it to Wiley. I don't even know who to, I just mailed it to Wiley and hoped it would get to the right person. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Uh, okay. But you did get the right people. You got agents, you got involved and eventually, um, you got a publisher signed on. That was an exciting moment when I, uh, you know, my agent shopped the book around, we, uh, got some offers. Um, we took one of them, which was the folks at Talos. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I signed a deal. I was super excited for my book to come out uh about a year after i signed the deal so that's the fun part is like you sign a deal if you're lucky you got uh you get a check for a little bit of money uh and then you sit around and wait because <laughs> most of publishing is hurry up and wait as in so many professions so uh, i didn't really i had a couple conversations with my editor like right after i signed the, the contract um, but not much happened as far as the text of the book went for um, six or seven months, at least. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by OmniFocus. You can learn more by heading over to omnigroup.com slash OmniFocus. So OmniFocus is my task management system of choice, and I've been using it for several years now. I use OmniFocus both on the Mac, on the iPhone, and on the iPad. What I love is that OmniFocus helps me get everything out of my mind and into a trusted system so that I can focus on what really matters, and that's just simply getting things done. 
OmniFocus has an interface that was designed and organized around all of your stuff that makes it easier than ever and more natural for you to get your ideas in and out of the app, whether you're using the GTD methodology or any other productivity system. Any of the versions of OmniFocus, whether it be for Mac or iOS, are powerful enough for you to use on your own, but they're even more powerful when you combine them together as a team. And OmniFocus syncs all of its data through the cloud using their free OmniSync service, or you can bring your own server if you'd like. Perhaps my favorite feature about OmniFocus is how easy it is to get information into the system. Because when you need to remember to get something done, you don't want to make it difficult to get that information into your task management system. You can choose to add items from Siri, import them from your to-do list, forward emails into OmniFocus for handling later, share any item with the share sheet into OmniFocus, whether it be on Mac or iOS, or use a simple keyboard shortcut to bring up a quick entry menu so you can quickly type out the thing that you need to remember for later, add some information, and store it away in your trusted management system. Whenever I start feeling a little overwhelmed and like I'm not quite in control of everything that I'm doing in life, I know that I probably haven't been paying much attention to my OmniFocus lately. And that's when I know that I need to sit down, redouble my efforts, take a deep breath, review everything in OmniFocus, make sure that I'm on top of my tasks, and I'm sure to feel better. You can have this mind-like water state and feel a whole lot better about being on top of all of your tasks by heading over to omnigroup.com or to the App Store and start a free trial of OmniFocus today. Thanks to OmniGroup for your kind support of Mac Power users. Dan, you were telling us that you, you finally made this deal. You got your agent. You got your publisher. The deal was signed. And then there was radio silence for some period of time. Why was that? And then what happened? So not as much radio silence as it was. The manuscript kind of sat for a while. I had a conversation very early on with my editor, who's a nice guy named Jason Katzman over at Talos. And he started asking me about what I would like to see on the cover. Now, that kind of took me aback because here I am ready to talk about my book, like my manuscript, the words, get down the nitty gritty details. And he's like, oh, what'd you think about having on the cover? And I was like, uh, spaceships i like spaceships uh <laughs> so i was a little a little flat-footed um and i did a bunch of research on cover art and like tried to find some examples of things i liked i even sketched out a uh an image of what i thought the cover should look like you can go over to my blog there's a story about this and along with the ridiculous image i drew because i'm not artistic in the least and i sent that over and so basically i spent the next month or two going back and forth with about cover art so they had an artist they gave him apparently gave him my sketch because what he came back with looked like an awesome version of what I had imagined. Um, and so I went back and forth and like just gave some comments on that. And, you know, they eventually did a mock up of the cover design with the title on it and everything. And so that was pretty cool. Uh, but that was like the bulk of what occupied my time. Yeah. But meanwhile, your precious words are sitting in a Microsoft Word file, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So. It wasn't until a few months, uh, I think January of, holy crap, what year is it? January of this year? January of this year, 2017, the year the book came out. Uh, January, I got like a uh, Word doc and I got sort of my edit letter. I think it was actually Chris, right around Christmas. Um, and so I had to like sit down and and basically go through and look at all the track changes, you know, so track changes, word doc. I had to go through and look at all the changes that my editor had made and essentially either sign off on them or fix things. Um, and that was exciting because I had, I ended up because I was on Christmas vacation and got back, I was out of the country. Even um, I ended up having like 
a week to turn it around <laughs> two weeks maybe uh and i was like uh so i ended up going through you know i'm sitting here on my couch got my laptop got microsoft word open looking at this document and i basically had to read my book like three times <laughs> in the space of a couple weeks and I'm reading through, and and if you've ever read anything with track changes on, you know how quickly it can get kind of overwhelming because you're looking at all the colors and the flags and all this stuff. And so I'm sitting there trying to read through this whole thing and make sure that everything makes sense. Uh, and that's a tall order, especially I will tell you, anybody out there who is work and was going to work on a novel, um, you're going to hate that book at some point. You're just going to despise it. Because you're going to have read it so many times. You will read that book. I guarantee you, you will read that book more than anybody else will ever read that book. And by the end of that process, you will just be like, I never want to read this book again. But so it's just, it's interesting to me that I would think that they would like have phone calls with you saying, okay, this is the general direction issues we have. Or or maybe the book was, was to a point where it really didn't need big time corrections. It was more like small stuff. I mean... I just it's just kind of baffling to me that you would just get a, a word file with a bunch of red lines in it. Yeah, it's not that's not strictly what I get. So in theory, you get uh, and I, I did get um, from my editor what's called an edit letter, and essentially this is a high level overview of like here are some things I think you like should look at. So yes, yeah, so you do get some big picture indications um, from your editor that are sort of like I think we should focus on this and this. In my case, uh, my editor who I worked with very well um, did not have like really big like oh this plot is um you know totally screwed up or whatever and, yeah, and they probably would have taken you if they thought that. right well a large yeah. part of that i credit to my agent because in those years that i was spending after i met this guy um joshua bilmis my agent over at jabberwocky he spent a really long time with me um going back and forth and helping me revise so it had already been hammered a lot by the time it got to the editor and i think that did was a good that did it a service because it was not in a shape where the editor really needs to tear things out or tear things apart. Um, it ended up being pretty clean. And he had some like comments about, you know, just things that I tended to do that he would like me to change a little bit in terms of, you know, sort of like a show, not tell thing, or just don't go into so much detail here, compress the narrative in these parts a little bit, but it was never, there was no, no huge structural problem. So I was very lucky in that regard. Um, and so a lot of what I was dealing with were things like wording, getting down in the weeds, um, trying to make line level changes. Uh, and, and every editor works a little differently and every publisher works a little differently. So my experience is certainly not universal. Uh, people are going to encounter different things in this process. But for me, a lot of it was really just line level. Like I'm going to go through, I'm going to read everything very closely. I'm going to make changes where I need to, and I'm going to address some of those larger things, but they're not like a lot of like pulling out whole chapters or anything like that. So, but at this point now you're out of Scrivener and your only tool is Microsoft Word. Had you spent much time in Word lately? I don't, I don't know that you probably would have with at, at Macworld. Um, we tried to avoid it at Macworld and I kudos to Jason Snell for that. Um, we did end up using it for, um, so we used to do, I don't think these are a going concern anymore, but we used to have our Macworld super guides. Uh, and some of those were done in, uh, manuscripts were done in Word at sort of the beginning and then i think eventually laid out in like indesign or something so you kind of just got thrown into it then yeah i i had done work in word there and i had done a little bit when i did the book that i talked about last time i was on which uh i co-authored with jeff carlson um the connected apple family like 
I had done word. That was all in word. As oh, was that in word? And that wasn't word. Okay, yeah, I did. I had edited another book. I was thinking for a second. I realized that was a different book that I edited, and that was for Take Control, and they have their own process. Um, and so, yeah, so I had spent a little bit of time in Word, and of course, it's kind of impossible to go through your life without using Microsoft Word at all. So, you know, I had a passing familiarity with it, but I was not certainly not a regular Word user. So, what was your impression now that you were kind of thrown into it with Word? I will caveat this by saying that the version of Word I was using was an older version of Word. I want to say Microsoft Office 2011. Is that a thing? Um, It was, I think, the same version of Microsoft Office that I was using when I was at Macworld. So it's certainly not the newest version by any means, but it is the version I had. and, And Microsoft is at least very good at maintaining backwards compatibility. So I had no problem. I don't know what version my editor was using, but we had no problems with compatibility. So kudos to Microsoft on that, at least. Um... I always think of word like, you know, it's tank. Like the thing is just a giant behemoth that's like uh, keeps getting added on to year after year after year. And every once in a while they try to tear stuff down and start over again. But there's always like weird little cruft and features left in there because nobody wants to see their feature die. So for me, I find it a little unwieldy, but it gets the job done at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I feel like it's they've turned a corner on the Mac. I mean, for a while it was just it was terrible. I mean, I I forget what was it. Um, I guess it was around the days of Tiger. You know, when 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 Microsoft when Apple had switched to Intel and Microsoft was very slow in getting kind of an Intel based version of Office. And I remember distinctly where I would type letters. I, old listeners of the show will will know. Remember me moaning about this you would type and then there would be a noticeable delay between the time you press the f and the f appeared on a screen like the computer had to stop and think about whether it was going to give you that f or not you know <laughs> it was pretty terrible uh but it's pretty good now so i i was just curious because i'm sure your book file was very large with lots of track changes was it stable for you i mean did the did the program hang in there i never had any problems with it crashing or anything um it definitely is one of those things where I'm used to opening a file and it's like, take a second, your file's open. Here you go. Word seems to do this thing that's kind of left over, I think, from days when computers didn't have as many resources, at least on Office 2011. Um, so you open it and it'll be like that thing where the page count slowly goes up as it like, it's like it's reading the book. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, yep, I found 20 <laughs> pages, found 40 pages, 100 pages, you know, and you're like, yeah, Keep going, get to the man. point. We got more. Get to the point. Like I, I'm on page 100. I need you to be with me here. Um, so, and, and you know, I've heard people speak very highly of the most current versions of Office, and it's one of those things that I keep meaning to be like, I should invest in like an Office 365 subscription, but I'm just kind of lazy, um, so I haven't done it yet. But I hear very good things about that, so I'm kind of interested in trying that out next time I have to go through this process. Yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the differences because the newer version is better. And it's funny with me. I don't know about you, Katie, but for me, when I use Microsoft Word, I think it's something it's just it's built in. My finger hits command S, you know, auto save command. I know it auto saves, but I can't help myself. Like every time I like move around, it's like, okay, I'm going to go read this research now. Command S. It just happens. I don't I couldn't even stop myself if I wanted to. And it's only happens in Microsoft Word. It doesn't happen in any other application. I'm so disappointed, David. I've got a keyboard maestro snippet that automatically saves anytime I have Word open every one minute. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's much more efficient. I, even if I had the snippet running, it wouldn't matter. I, I still, my fingers, uh, I have to hit command S when I use that app. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so you got two weeks, Mission Impossible, get through the book, go through all the edits. At some point, you got it done. And then what's the next thing that happens to you as an author? Um, well, next thing that happens is I send my manuscript in. Um, I get the approval after going back and forth a couple times with my editor on changing things. It gets turned eventually into a PDF, it's like sort of like a proof. Um, and I get a copy of that back. And that has been at some point uh, proofread by a proofreader employed by the editor. And I have to go through and answer all their queries. And those are done in like, um, I had to do it in uh, Adobe Reader because that was what I was told. Um, I think preview might've worked, but I didn't want to screw with it. So I just rolled with it. Um, and essentially like I was given instructions for like, all right, you're going to get the proof. Here's how you notate things in the proof. Here's how you answer queries, etc. So they have like their own system for dealing with it. And at that point I'm beholden to their system for marking up the manuscript and letting them know what things, you know, need to be fixed if anything and answering questions from the proofreader. You must at some point feel like a piece of meat in this process. <laughs> um, it is definitely at times a little sobering to remember that like, yep, okay, this is a book. I'm writing a book that there's a reason I'm doing this whole thing. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of time where it's like, I've read this book so many times and I've followed all these instructions and you start to, your eyes get blurry and you're trying to remember which read through this is. And yeah, it is a little bit, it's definitely sobering. So I'm just realizing now we're a long, long way from that original Scrivener file that you had because you've got multiple revisions, multiple proofs, and all of those types of things. Do you have your book anymore in a format where you could I – mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what your rights are to it, but uh, I, I mean, I just – that would make me a little nervous. It's interesting that you say that because currently I don't um... – I have some gal I have a PDF that is more or less the um final version but I don't have like a word file and I certainly don't have scrivener anymore and this is this is another thing I'm super interested to try at some point which is trying to figure out if there's a way to get my word like the current version back into scrivener um I would if I asked my editor they would probably give me the word doc that's like the most recent version of the word doc I'm sure they have that archived um and I guess I could spend some time importing that back into Scrivener I guess the big question for me is is it worth my time and I I certainly agree with you like at times I feel like oh I want to have that uh like someplace that I can refer to it or someplace that I can use my tools of of choice on it but um yeah, it's not something that's come up for me just because I haven't had a reason to go back to it. But I do think at some point that might be an issue. So I I have thought about like trying to get a copy of that in. I I talked to other writers about like how do what do you do about like folding your changes back into your original document and they just sort of we all give looks to each other like that is that is a lot of work. <laughs> it is. It, at some point in the publishing process you kind of lose control of of the words in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you still, the nice thing again, as you said, it's still your book and you still generally, if you're working with a good editor and a good process, you still have a fair degree of control. But yeah, you don't necessarily have the, uh, you know, the straight up, like the the goods, right? Like you don't necessarily have control over the physical or digital file of it anymore. You are now part of a, a bigger chain. 
But that's true even when you self-publish. I've, I've experienced that. I mean, after I get it through editors and stuff, it's very rare that I get it back into the source document. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. With a unique domain name and award-winning templates and more, you can get off and running with no trouble at all. I love hearing from listeners. We hear from listeners all the time that have signed up for Squarespace based on them advertising on the Mac Power Users. And the thing that we always get from listeners is the fact that they're just not worried about their website anymore. With Squarespace, not only do they have a great system to build a gorgeous-looking website to help you out with your next big idea, they also do the hosting for you, and they also do the management for you. No longer do you have to worry if your plugins are up to date or if you're subject to security vulnerabilities. Squarespace has got you covered. So maybe you want to create an online store or create a portfolio, or maybe you want to create a blog. Maybe you're like Mike Hurley, our friend at Relay, who's getting ready to get married, and he's setting up a Squarespace website for his wedding. No matter what your need is, Squarespace gives you the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it covered. In addition, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Because in the day job I'm a lawyer, a lot of times I hear from uh, friendly lawyers who look at my website, and they're super interested in it. They want to know who my web guy is, they want to know how much it costs, and I have to admit, sometimes I don't even have the heart to tell them because they just spent $10,000 on an ugly website. And when I tell them I got my Squarespace site, I built it myself and it cost me $12 a month, uh, it just makes them crazy. But that's what you can do with Squarespace. But don't just take my word for it. You can make your next move with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com to start your free trial with no credit card required. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your purchase and make us look awesome, which we like. Once again, that's squarespace.com with offer code MPU for 10% off. Thank you, Squarespace, for your support of Mac Power Users. So, Dan, how did it feel the first time you got a box delivered to your house? You opened it and you saw the fancy version of the cover you drew and a bunch of words that you wrote inside a book. It was pretty awesome. Uh, I first got a handful of um, what are called ARCs, ARCs, advanced reading copies or advanced reader copies. I don't remember. Um, and so those are, for all intents and purposes, like semi-final versions of it. But they're versions that go out to reviewers. They're versions that go out sometimes to like bookstores, bookstore buyers, essentially. Um, and so I got a handful that I could share around. Um, you know, if I ran into somebody who was like, oh, this person, I need to give this person a copy of my book. Um, and I think I still have one. I gave two of them out. Um, and, but it was really cool to open a box and be like, oh my God, it's a physical object. It really is. And get to flip through it and all that stuff. So that was neat. Um, and I had those maybe a month to six weeks before the book actually came out. And then right around publication day, I, I did literally get a box that had like 10 copies of my book in it. Um, and so that was pretty cool. I think I took like a little unboxing video. Um, but it was, uh, you know, that for me, it certainly was a big deal to have a physical object there, right? Like I know disrespect to people who publish digitally. I certainly have worked primarily digitally in my career. Um, 
uh, but it is just something amazing to get a box of of books with your name on it and a a story that you wrote in it. I, it's a little surreal. Now, one thing that you have done, I think very well, and you can elaborate on this, is you have really taken this network that you've built up, um, you know, through people who have known you through your tech endeavors and through your podcasting and, and all of those things. Uh, you have really gotten the word out about your book, probably more so than most authors who would have otherwise been in your position. How Was that a coordinated effort? Did you have any guidelines for that? And what has been your experience there? Um, mainly, so I'm very lucky. I've been on Twitter for a very long time, um, 10 years or so now, and I've been working in the, in, in the tech industry for a very long time and writing for a very long time. And that has been a huge boon to me. I, I, especially on Twitter, um, where I have a decent follower back, you know, like a, a decent number of followers. I feel like I am very lucky and privileged to be able to, uh, you know, have a lot of people who will at least see if not read what i what i put out there uh and so you know with that as my platform i have tried to be uh walk that line i don't want to be a person who is just self-promoting all the time um but i also you know this is something i did something that i'm proud of and i always have to combat that that little bit of um you know i was raised in an environment where like you don't brag or boast about these things right and i my mom is a uh, grew up Catholic and my dad is Jewish. So I feel like I kind of get it with both barrels. Um, and <laughs> I, I just don't, like, you know, it's like, I just like to put my stuff out there. Let the work speak for itself. But I have to remind myself, like, you, you know, people are interested. People want to know. And they, not that they want to be barraged with stuff, but like if I tweet, you know, every once in a while about my book, uh, people are generally pretty receptive and people have been great. Uh, my response on Twitter has been fantastic. I have had so many people, uh, tweet at me and tell me they enjoyed the book. And that just means the world to me. And it's so nice. And I imagine just so fun, like as someone who is also a, a fan and a reader, um, being able to reach out to people who I like their books and have them, you know, respond to me or acknowledge that is I always found that extremely gratifying. Um, and so having being in the position of having people come to me is just wonderful. And and it's great to be able to have that medium that allows for the direct uh, contact. So I, I spent a lot of this time myself sort of coming up with like, you know, I'm going to tweet about this. I'm going to do some podcasts about this. Um, you know, I'm going to write here and there. Uh, I did a piece on um, John Scalzi's blog that was sort of like a, a little essay. Um, and so having all those things at my disposal was really uh, a great opportunity to get the word out. And it's just kind of how things are done now, right? Like, I mean, people find out about things on social media and and word of mouth is sort of the big, still the big deal, the deal and like how to get your, your word out there. And I was lucky to have some write-ups in a few places. Um, and so that was, that was great. Um, and, but, but a lot of this I've been doing myself, just trying to um, talk to the audience I already have and hopefully they'll talk to other people and expand that audience. And I'm, you know, just very lucky to be where I am. Yeah. I, I think that the, the difference now is that you've got the ability to, to connect with readers like never before. I mean, if you go back 20 years, authors didn't have things like Twitter and Facebook and, and ways to connect. And I, and I know that since you've published the book, you have connected a lot with your readers and got lots of great feedback. Um, so, so how are you putting your geek muscles to work on that piece of being an author? Um, well, so a couple things. Um, one is I, uh, I set up, um, 
so one of the things I wanted to be able to do was like I did have a book event when this launched in fact in my hometown just outside of Boston and that was great like a lot of people showed up the bookstore sold a lot of books I signed a bunch of books which was really cool um and I, I did a couple things that I, I really enjoy, sort of a workflow for signing the book. So I got some pens um, that were kind of recommended. Uh, they're sort of colorful and, and I can sign books with. But I also made stamps, um, so like big rubber stamps, essentially. And I, I got this idea from my friend Adam Mercunis, who is a fantastic writer. Everybody should go read his book, Windswept. Uh, and it's, it's great. Um, but I noticed when he would do signings, he had a little stamp and it had a little logo that was related to something in his book. And I was like, that is a great idea. Adam, can I steal that? And he said, no, you may not steal that. And he was kidding. So, of course, I stole it. You did it, it anyway. Um, yeah, I did it anyways. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, oh, well, I, you'd be great if I got things that were specific to my book. And so I brainstormed a little bit and was like, oh, I should get logos made for the two main factions in the book. And so I was like, well, I'm, as I've mentioned before, I'm not artistic in the least. Um, I had some ideas in my head, just sort of generically like a description of what these things were, but I couldn't really put that as easily into an image. So I talked to um, uh, the, Mr. Forgotten Towel uh, on Twitter, at Forgotten Towel, who does all the art for, um, or a lot of the art for relay shows. Um, he did the clockwise art, among other things. I think he did Liftoff for Jason and Steven. Um, just fantastic. He does a fantastic job. He's a very talented designer. And I was like, hey. Yeah, he did he did our art and then also did my law firm's art. So he's multi-talented. Yeah. He's fantastic. And I was like, hey, do you have any interest in this project? Uh, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm a huge fan of this kind of stuff. I would love to do this. And so I hired him. Um, and he came up with some some ideas and some proofs and sent me some concepts and i went through them with some friends and was like what do you like and my girlfriend and we're like sort of like look through these things and we're like which of these do we like and i settled on a couple and we made a little revisions to one of them but eventually like i and i posted these on my blog but i have these awesome like logos um and so he gave me some files that i could do with as i please and i made some stamps uh using um vistaprint i think um just some plain rubber stamps um they're one's red one's blue that goes with the theme of them um and i made some stickers via sticker mule which i really like and sort of have those as like swaggy things and i also made some book plates now a lot of people don't necessarily know what these things are but they're basically like adhesive labels you can stick in a book that that an author can sign and so i had noticed one of my friends um did this my friend mike cole who's an author was like hey uh you know if you can't you know get to a signing or whatever um just let me know and i will send you an autographed book plate and his were had a nice logo on it from his book and i was like that's a great idea so i went out and i found a place that would do book plates and i had them put the logos on them and i've been offering free book plates to people who cannot get to signing or won't see me in person um you uh i'll put a maybe we can i can give you a link uh in the show notes but you can um you can go and request one on a form and I have two different designs and I will inscribe it however you like and I'll send it out to you free of charge. Um, so, yeah, that's a thing. I really felt like being able to leverage these, not only the design aspects of knowing a talented designer who I could hire to do this, like work for me and create this sort of branding, but also having all these resources at my disposal where I could, you know, invest in making stickers and stamps and book plates like is a really great way to have like marketing and swag and and also engage with readers and make them feel like excited about um like oh i can get a signed book even if i can't get to the boston area because i don't ever seem to go to other places and sign things um 
Yeah, so that was uh, having those opportunities in the modern day is huge. Uh, and I think, as you said, David, just as with communicating directly with your fans, wasn't a thing you could do easily 30 years ago. I don't really think this was a thing that was easy to do 30 years ago. But yeah, you can do all this stuff now. I'm even I'm thinking I've been tossing around the idea of making shirts with these too. So we'll see if that happens. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Now, now what about <laughs> other social media? Are you like doing, is there like a social media avenue for people who like your books to get in? touch with you or um not directly i mean so i posted a lot on twitter and facebook and a little bit on instagram i mean twitter really is the social media where i am the most um active uh and so that's sort of been my thing i do have my website um which has the you can email me from my website there's a little contact form there and i have gotten some very nice emails from people and readers through that which has been really cool um but yeah i tend to think of myself as a pretty approachable guy so you know, people are free to contact me through any of those means. And I, I try to respond to all my emails where I can. I mean, most of the time I, I do. I mean, I get emails a lot through six colors and stuff, too. And I always try to respond to those as well. Awesome. Well, I've just gone online and requested a book plate because I think I need one of those for my book. So thank you very much, Dan. Oh, you're welcome. We I'm delighted to hear that. Put the link in the show. Since I bought my book on iBooks, I guess you just have to stick the the book plate on the front of my iPad. Yeah, you have to just <laughs> stick it up. Yeah, and and now you'll be like uh, you'll be like Mike. You'll have lots of stickers. It's on your it's on your forehead. There you go. <laughs> just right there. I actually do have your faction stickers on my luggage, by the way. <laughs> oh, awesome! That's great. I love. Well, when everybody and whenever anybody asks, like, "Oh, those are cool. What are those from?" You I, see, I it's a it's a story. immediate it's immediate story behind it. Yeah, I, my, Katie, I've got your request. It it just popped up. <laughs> um, I have a whole system for that, which I guess I could go into since this is a workflow show. It took me a while to figure out what the hell I was doing there. Um, so I have a WordPress blog. I use a plugin called WP Forms. Yes, I you believe. do because I just saw. Oh. It pop up yeah yeah and so i was trying to figure out a way to automate this process um and essentially it's not super automated but i get an email it runs down all the information that's in your form and i have an option on there this was the tricky part was i have an option on there to add yourself to my mailing list and for a while there i was just getting two emails and i would get the email for the book plate and i would get a separate email like hey this person wants to be on the mailing list and then i would have to manually go add them to my mailing list which was kind of a nightmare um i use mailer light um, which was recommended by a friend of mine. Uh, I know a lot of people like MailChimp too, but MailerLite was just a little simpler for me. Um, and I don't think I'm likely to run into their like free limit for the number of users yet. Um, and so I tried to figure out for a while a way to glue these things together and eventually realized um, you could sort of do that with um, uh, Zapier. Uh, there was an ability to set up like uh, a Zapier mailbox and I could forward, I could have the um, email sign up thing go to the Zapier mailbox and then MailerLite could like look at it and automatically add those people to the mailing list. And so that ended up being a great integration. I don't have to worry about it anymore. My mailing list is automatically upgraded or updated whenever it needs to be. I don't send a lot of stuff to the mailing list. I, I really intended it for it to be a very low volume thing um, because there's just uh, people don't like being inundated with these things. And, you know, I don't want to have to write emails every week and people don't want to get emails every week. So I try to make it super low impact. And, um, yeah, it's been it's been helpful. I, I've done a little bit of the mailing list thing. Uh, I haven't really like had a good incentive for people to sign up for the mailing list yet. That's something I've been tossing around, like whether it be uh, offering like a free short story or something like that. But I haven't really managed to uh, get a concerted um, a concerted reason for people to do that so right now it's just like if you feel like it 
So how much of your time as you get, as you, cause this is the problem, right? You, you have some success, you got a book out, it's a great book. And, and now you're managing that part of it, you know, people and fan inquiries and things like that. And then you also need to get back to work and making another book. Um, how is your time balanced now? Your author time balanced between those two jobs and, and is it working for you? Yeah, it's tough. Um, they use different parts of the brain, which is nice. Like there are definitely days where it's like, I am not feeling creative, but I want to like apply it. Like I'm feeling more like a problem solving mood. And those are the days where I'll like sit down and figure out how do I connect my WordPress form to my, to my mailing list. And because I'm a technical person, that's fun for me. It's just a different sort of, like I said, it uses a different part of my brain just as podcast editing does from writing. Um, I try to divide my day up a little bit into like, you know, I try to do my creative work in the morning when I feel fresh and when I feel like nothing else is really like, taken me out of that zone yet um you know i haven't necessarily gone through all my email i haven't read twitter etc uh, i feel like that's always the the best time for me to sort of strike while the iron's hot and then off, oftentimes i'll go home i'll eat lunch I'll often record a podcast around lunchtime because that just happens to be when they're scheduled for me and then in the afternoon i will try to do my other work and my whether it be administrative stuff that i'm doing for the book or whether it be like my actual my actual day job of like writing technology journalism. Um, and so trying to balance all those things, it's definitely tricky. And uh, the creative stuff is unfortunate. Yeah. Frustrating part is that the creative stuff is often the first thing to fall by the wayside when you get like super stressed and busy with all the other stuff because it feels the most sacrificable. Uh, and that's the struggle I've been having is especially like I've been on vacation the last few weeks. I haven't really sat down and done a lot of writing uh, and I know coming back into this, like, all right, I got to get back to work on this. I got to get on to the next thing. This is the thing we talk about free agents sometimes. It's like you've got the thing you really love and the thing you really want to do. And you've got the other thing that, you know, is solid in terms of paying the bills. The lines. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's it's tough. It's a big challenge. And, you know, everybody's got different ways of dealing with it. But it is um, it is it's a struggle. And I think all creative people especially deal with that and all passionate people who are doing their own work. Um, you know, really have to figure out how to make that work. And some people do it and everybody does it in a different way. Dan, I know we're running um, low on time here, but I wonder, are there any particular resources that we haven't talked about that you would recommend for people who are maybe looking to publish their own novel or, or have are interested in going down this, this same path, things that you found particularly useful to you as you were trying to figure this all out? Um, I, I did a lot of Googling for stuff as it came up, and I found that the most um, beneficial sources are generally other authors. Um, there's a lot of good resources on... Um, so I, I think of a handful of authors who I really like. Um, uh, Chuck Wendig is a good example of somebody who um, writes a lot about the craft of writing, I think. And like uh, his stuff is very interesting. He's got a big blog. He's written several books about like the writing craft. Um, John Scalzi writes a lot about business or has in the past. Um, uh, I think there are some other ones that I'm probably forgetting right now. I mentioned earlier, writer beware is a good resource for people who want to like make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. Um, uh, CIFWA, the Science Fiction Writers Association, of which I am a member, has a lot of good resources for people who are interested in um, sort of finding their way through the uh, the publishing morass. Um, but a lot of it is I just tried to read as broadly as I could uh, and tried to, you know, find a lot of, you know, other people who seem to have gone through this and their experiences. And I've also found that in the past, people have been very receptive to, um, 
emails and like reaching out and like you want to be delicate about how you do that right like you don't want to necessarily impinge on anybody's time but i found that if you're just very like oh you know pleasant and don't like go in expecting like huge detailed information but like hey do you have any tips for someone looking to start out i found that most people are nice and and um will give you some of their time and try to help you out so i I always recommend just you know try and look around uh find find the writers you admire see what they did um if they seem receptive, reach out to them and see if they've got any advice for you. I've I've found that to be very beneficial in my lifetime. Awesome. And Dan, we'll have links in the show notes, but where can we find you these days? Oh, I'm I'm everywhere. I'm omnipresent. I'm all things. Um, primarily on Twitter, I'm at dmorin. You can find me on, I guess I'm on Facebook. I don't know how you find me on Facebook. Search for my name. That'll probably come up. Uh, I'm on Instagram at dmorin. Uh, you can find me writing at Six Colors and at Macworld. I still do a weekly column there. And of course, I do a number of podcasts, including Clockwise right here on Relay FM. I do a tech show called The Rebound uh, with my friends Lex Friedman and John Moltz. And I'm over at a ton of stuff at The Incomparable. So you can find me at theincomparable.com nattering on about a variety of topics, most of them pretty nerdy. Uh, yeah, I think that pretty much covers you can find me at my house if you know where my house is please don't come find we, me at my we house. won't That's put that cool. in the show notes it's fine <laughs> and you can find dan on uh, all the great booksellers list because the caledonian gambit is a, is a book that i recommend you read if you have any interest in science fiction or spy novels that's the other thing i the the spy novels where you got me dan i didn't know i, I picked it up thinking i was reading sci-fi <laughs> and i got some spy stuff out of it that's i sneak it in there i'm a big spy spy movie and spy novel fan so that's I always wanted to write a combination. That's what I did. I wrote a combination sci-fi story and spy well, novel, so, it, for me yeah. the experience was the first couple of pages I'm like I can't believe I'm reading Dan's published book, you know. So you know you're excited because this is a pal of yours. But very quickly I got into the story and and completely forgot it was Dan Morin's book and instead it's just a good book and uh that's I think what you're going for. So so everybody go over to dmorin.com and uh, there's a link there for the Caledonian Gambit. Buy it through Dan. So, you know, let him get a couple extra pennies on the deal. And um, and let him know how great it is. Maybe he'll send you something uh, signed you put in your book for you. All right. Well, thanks to Dan for joining us on this episode. We also want to say thank you to our sponsors, Smile, 1Password, Omni Group, and Squarespace. And, of course, thank you to all those Real AFM members who have supported us. And don't forget to go download your bonus episodes. We will see you all next time. 